Amen. Amen. Thank you all for uh, just sharing some of the, the, the passages, things you've been meditating on in Scripture uh, with us. That was cool. Thanks for, for uh, leading us in that time. We're going to keep going with God's Word. We're going to take a look and continue our time in the book of Matthew this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 14. If you need a Bible, we've got some ushers who would love to put one in your hands. Um, and as they're passing this around... Uh, if you're new at Cornerstone, welcome. My name's Christian. Uh, we've been together for about 45 minutes or so, just getting to praise God and hear about things going on in the life of our church. And now what we're going to get to do is, is open up God's Word. We're about a year into our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're counting chapters, we're right about the halfway point. There's 28 chapters in Matthew. And this morning, we'll be looking at Matthew 14, the whole chapter. It's going to be fun. Uh, last Sunday, if you were with us, we went through uh, and we read chapters 14 through 17. And then this morning, we'll look at chapter 14 all at once. And there's a reason for that. We'll do kind of a survey of this chapter in order to see a couple things. Number one, like there's a few things, we, we, important things we learn about Jesus in this chapter. There's a number of things we learn about the disciples and that process of them walking with Jesus. And toward the end, we'll, we'll talk about a few uh, Im important details for us as followers of Jesus. Um, so even though it was a week ago that we read through this passage, I'm going to start us off by reading through Matthew chapter 14. It's a longer passage. I won't make you stand for it like we normally do. If you'd like to, feel free. But otherwise, um, you can follow along in your Bibles. You'll see uh, there's a good reason for looking at this chapter all at once. But would you begin with me in uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, Herod feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give to me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. Then John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself but when the crowd heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. 
Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. This isn't something people normally did. And he, they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent all around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, amen. Father, would you give us eyes to see? You have given us your word. You have preserved your word throughout the last 2,000 years. You have given it to us in a multitude of translations in our language so that we might understand it, but not just understand it on a cognitive level, get the words on the page. Would you cause it to sink deeply within our hearts? Would it transform the way that we live even today in this room together? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, there's a lot here, but I think there's, a, there's many good reasons for us to look at this big picture all at once. One of the biggest ones, I guess, what I think about for myself as a kid who grew up in the church, grew up going to Sunday school, grew up hearing these stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water and even that weird, weird, sad story about how John the Baptist was killed in prison I remember hearing those as a kid and we'd follow up with a snack and a juice box and a coloring sheet and all the fun stuff we, we still do in children's ministry. But what I remember is kind of hearing these stories as like individual lessons. And to be honest, it probably wasn't until I started teaching in one of the youth groups here, fresh out of Bible college, that like ding, 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 I went, wait, this all happened on the same day. This was one long day and night and into the next day for Jesus. And I don't know about you, when I, when I stepped back and looked at that whole story, it caused me to look at these familiar stories and, and, and look at Jesus in, in a fresh light. 
What does this, this whole sequence of events that both Matthew and Mark tell us happened on this one long day and night and into the next day? What do they teach us about Jesus, about his heart, his motivations, the way he operated? That's what we've been talking about throughout the series, right? To apprentice with Jesus is to learn to walk in the same way that he did. So what do we learn about him from this sequence of events? What did he plan to do that day? How were his plans interrupted? And how did Jesus respond when his plans were interrupted? Let's walk through this a little bit together, okay? I want to start with this. Again, the, the chapter begins with probably the one event that didn't take place on the same day as the rest of these. Most likely, John the Baptist was not beheaded this same day. But the thing that did happen at the start of this day was that the disciples of John, after burying John, came to Jesus and told him about it. And do you remember the way that Jesus responded? Look again at verse 12, maybe. There it is. The disciples of John come, they buried uh, John's body, they come, they tell Jesus, and in verse 13 it says, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He wanted to get off by himself, alone, across the Sea of Galilee. Again, in Mark chapter 6, it, it, Mark clarifies for us, Jesus didn't go completely by himself. He said to his, his disciples, come with me and let's go off by ourselves to get some time of rest. Now, Mark, Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew to be by himself. He doesn't necessarily tell us why, but why do you think Jesus might have wanted to get some time to himself at this point after the news that he just heard? I mean, in, 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 yeah, to mourn. I mean, think about this. John wasn't nobody. John was the one that was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. Do you remember back in chapter 11, some of the things that, that John, Jesus himself said of John? He said of John that there had been no one greater born of a woman, meaning no other human being greater than John up to that point. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than him. There's something even better arriving in Jesus. But he goes up to this point, you can't get greater than John. He is the greatest prophet in Israel's history. And this is the way the greatest prophet gets taken out? Like not in a blaze of glory on a battlefield somewhere fighting against God's enemies. But chained up in prison, his head taken off of his body, because in a really gross way, Herod got so excited watching his stepdaughter dance that he made her a promise a foolish promise to get her, give her whatever she wanted. And then even when she said she wanted John's head, Herod was too embarrassed. He had to save face in front of his guests to tell her no. That's the way that John gets taken out. I mean, how would you respond? I would imagine, I think there's every reason to believe that there was sadness, grief, I would even say righteous anger on Jesus' part. What happened to John was evil. And you think in a way, Jesus in his humanity goes, let's just take some time and process through this together. I think perhaps also in Jesus' mind was the fact that just as John was the forerunner for his ministry, the fate of John is not going to be too dissimilar from the fate that Jesus himself would face later, right? Like John, Jesus would be arrested by the rulers of his people. Like John, Jesus would be 
There would be unjust, an unjust demand for his life made by people. And just like John, the person in control, the person who could have stopped it was too cowardly, in this case Pontius Pilate, to say, no. Instead he goes, I'll just wash my hands, this one's on you guys. No, Peter, uh, Pilate, it's on you too. The same fate that John faced, Jesus himself would face. But again, as we sang a little bit ago, we know Jesus didn't just suffer a shameful, unjust death. He died in order to conquer our shame and defeat our injustice. He died at the hands of sinful men in order to deal with the sinfulness of us. Amen? Not only that, we know that though Jesus let evil do its worst to him, what did he do three days later? He rose again, didn't he? Death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. We see the good that God accomplished through the evil that was done to Jesus. But again, sometimes because we, many of us are familiar with that big story, our salvation is hinged upon the fact that Jesus died at the hand of sinful people in order to solve the problem of our sin. But think again about the way that Jesus himself processed through what he was about to face. Think about another time where Jesus withdrew by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. Knowing all that would be accomplished through his death, yet even still, he is in anguish to the point of sweating drops of blood, crying out to his father saying, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? Yet not my will but yours be done. There's even a point where God sends an angel, an angelic messenger, to strengthen Jesus so that he might face what was to come. Jesus walked willingly to the cross, but that doesn't mean he walked stoically. That doesn't mean he walked unfazed. No, we see throughout Jesus' life in his humanity, he felt deeply, his emotions were engaged in what he was doing. He felt it deeply. We don't know all of what was going through Jesus' heart and mind in those moments, but what was clear was that in response to what happened to John, Jesus wanted some time away. He needed some time away with his disciples. But who saw him leave on the boat? All the crowds in the area, the people around, they see Jesus leave. It's not a very big lake. They see him start to go across, and so what do they do? Walk along the shore, kind of follow him as he goes. I bet you they could see Jesus going across. Jesus could probably see them going across. Okay. <laughs> I was wanting to guess. If it were me, and I showed up wanting some planned time away, and there was a crowd of people needing my help, which is another good reason why it's really good I'm not Jesus. Many, many, many good reasons for that. I would go, guys, this is, yeah, yeah, I know we normally do this kind of thing, but I just got some really bad news about someone who meant a lot to me. I just, I just need some time. Could, could, we, could we reschedule this? <laughs> could we find a time later in the schedule? But instead, look at the way that Jesus responds. I think this is incredible. He gets, he finds this crowd of people with needs. And how does he respond in verse 14? He had compassion on them. He healed their sick. 
in the midst of his own grief, anger, desire for some time alone, he sees the needs of people and he responds with compassion. And compassion not just as a feeling, oh, I feel for you guys, but action. He heals them. Those who were sick and in need, he rearranges his plans to meet their needs. I mean, isn't this, he's confronted with a group of people who have come to him, a massive group. We find out later at least 5,000 men, including women and children. So gosh, who knows? 10, 15,000 people, we don't know. It was a huge amount of people. And he rearranges his plan based upon compassion and not just compassion, but his power to meet their need. Remember back in chapter 11, he said, if any of you are weary and heavy laden, do what? Come to me. I'll give you rest. And so even in a moment where it seems Jesus was looking for rest, he finds a group of people who have come to him for rest. And I would say this is that first big thing we learn about Jesus in this chapter. Jesus has compassion for people, but not just compassion as a feeling, an action. He has compassion for people and he has power to meet our needs. Again, we see this, the reason why I want to tackle this whole chapter at once, we see this throughout this chapter, right? Confronted with a group of people needing healing, he spends all day healing them. Mark's account of this in Mark 6 makes, makes it clear to us he not only healed, he also taught them many things. Then when the day's fully over, the sun's about to set, the disciples come to him and say, hey, Jesus, I don't think we're going to get to that whole alone time thing that we, we wanted at the beginning of the day. But here we are out in the middle of nowhere. You should probably send the people away so they can go into the towns and get some food. And even then, Jesus goes, they don't need to go away. I can meet their need for food even right here in this desolate place. I have power to meet their needs. Well, actually, first he tells the disciples that they need to give the people something to eat. We'll come back to that idea in a few minutes. Meets their need for healing, meets their need for food. Later on that day when he does dismiss the crowds and sends the disciples back off, he goes up onto the mountaintop to pray. And then in that fourth watch of the night, he looks out and he sees another group of people in need. This time it's the disciples on the boat needing help to get across the lake because the wind's against them. And though he has no boat, he still has power to meet their need. Amen? He walks to them on water, comes to them in their moment of need. He calls Peter to come out. And though Peter does good at first, he gets fearful of the waves. He starts to sink. He cries out. And immediately, I love that word immediately there. Immediately, he reached out his hand and he took care of Peter. I love that. I got a little bit behind on my slides. Immediately, he reached out his hand and took care of Peter. Then even at the very end, after that long day, long night, into the next day, he lands again Nesaret. Here's another crowd of people, another bunch of needs, and still more compassion and power from Jesus to meet those needs. Do you see how good he is? Do you see how powerful he is? Do you ever doubt that he cares about you? Do you ever doubt that he is able to take care of you? Do anything about this, this situation that I'm facing now. He both cares for you and is able to take care of you. He is compassionate and powerful. Amen? That 
That's the first big thing we see about Jesus. Here's the second one I want to point out to you. In the midst of all these things going on, all the people that Jesus is taking care of, who did Jesus look to to take care of him? Not only is he compassionate and powerful to meet our needs, I see in this chapter Jesus' devotion to his father. Who did Jesus look to to take care of him? His father in heaven. That's why after, again, his initial plan to get off and get some time by himself, get interrupted by the people's plans, by the, by the crowd, and he takes all day to care for them. Then after the day spent, he dismisses the crowds, he dismisses the disciples. He doesn't go take a nap. He goes up on the mountaintop to get that time with his father that I think he was seeking from the very start of that day. He didn't go, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to get to that today. He went, no, actually, you know what? Now's the time. Tired as I may be, this is the most needful thing to do with my time right now. He spends that night in prayer. I would say this. We see clearly that in Jesus' humanity, as, as a human, he needed sleep just like we do. Some of us need to be reminded, you, you need sleep. We need sleep. Jesus needed sleep. There's even a point earlier in chapter 8 where Jesus was so tired, he was sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm. He needed sleep. But yet on this night, after the events of that long day, Jesus recognized that what he needed more than sleep was time with his father, to find rest and refreshment with his father, to be devoted and dependent upon his father. Now, let me say this to us. If that is what Jesus, our Messiah, our teacher modeled for us, how much more do you and I need to depend upon God? How much more do you and I need to recognize and practice a sense of devotion to God that is just as essential for us as sleep? I know for myself, this is one of those things that's been very convicting in a good way in this chapter. In those times when my normal time or rhythms for prayer, Bible reading, time alone with the Lord, and if you have one too, which I hope you do, when those things get interrupted by legitimate needs in our lives, our kids need something from us, a, a coworker, something, something unexpected comes up. How do you respond? You just go, gosh, I guess I'm not gonna get to that today. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, gosh, where is my Bible? It's somewhere. Do we see it as essential as sleep to us? Jesus did as the son of God. How much more ought we to? Even at the end, there are those times where things get interrupted and there's legitimate needs we must meet. But afterwards... Do we see and practice our need for God to, to return and find rest, to process through the events of our day with him? And again, I am not saying this to you as some sort of legalistic demand. Maybe you grew up with that where it's like, did you do your quiet time yet? And you had these charts you had to fill in and turn into youth group. How many times a week did you read the Bible and all that? That's not some sort of legalistic have to kind of a thing. I would say practicing devotion to God Practicing that time of prayer alone with him and his word is not a have-to requirement. It is a need-to, like sleep and food and exercise. You will not be healthy without it. It is not only a need-to, it is a get-to. A get-to, a privilege. 
I love the way that, that Moses talks about it in the book of Deuteronomy where he says, what other nation gets to have their gods as close to them as the Lord our God is close to us every time we pray to him? What a privilege to have the ear of the king of the universe. It is a get to and it is a need to. And Jesus modeled that for us. So again, these are those first two things we see. Jesus has compassion for people, power to meet our needs. He is devoted to his father. Not only that, the one that we see most clearly, emphatically in verse 33, is that Jesus is the son of God. Now this one, maybe you go, yeah, okay, I know that. This is actually a, a huge grand reveal that takes place in this passage in Matthew chapter 14. Look at again, verse 33, after everything that the disciples see Jesus do that day, miraculously healing or people, feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, walking on water, empowering Peter to walk on water, rescuing Peter from the water, getting back in the boat, the wind ceased, they get to the other side. Their response, truly, you are the son of God. Wow, that's who Jesus is. That's who the disciples recognize that Jesus is at this moment and not before. Did you know this is the first time in the book of Matthew that the phrase son of God is used for Jesus by people. Up till this point, you know who's been using that title? In chapter four, Satan uses it. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, it, in his temptation, when Jesus is casting out demons, the demons cry out, we know who you are, the son of God. But this is the first time that this is spoken not out of a desire to tempt Jesus or as some sort of a challenge to his authority, but as worship. You see that there? They worshiped him and said, you are the son of God. So I would say right here at this moment, let's also pivot from what we see and learn about Jesus in this passage to what we learn about the disciples. Because again, this is that moment where I would say, we see that they are growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. They are, as they've walked with him over a number of months or perhaps even a year up, up to this point, they're starting to get it. The light bulb's turning on a little bit. They're following the trail of breadcrumbs and, and, and learning more about who Jesus is. But think about, this is pretty remarkable. You've got a group of 12 Jewish men worshiping Jesus. When they know full well from their Old Testament that you are to worship God alone. And yet they know in this moment through what they've seen about Jesus. It's actually right and appropriate to worship you too. In a way that they might not even, they couldn't have necessarily explained it, but there was such a sense in that moment, you are the son of God. And they're not done learning. There's a lot more that they're going to learn and understand about who Jesus is, as we're going to see as we continue through Matthew. But I think it's really cool to see the progress that they are making as they walk with Jesus. Because I think that's reflective for us, right? Maybe some of you are, 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 are pretty, pretty new in your journey of following Jesus. And there's a lot that's still kind of murky for you. But there's a few things you're going, ah. Oh, I'm catching it. Maybe you've walked with Jesus for quite a while now, decades of your life, and you go, wow, I feel like there's still a lot more for me to learn. Yes, exactly. 
Watch this. I think this is really cool. This is a detail that just really was exciting to me as I was studying on this passage. Did you know that here in this, this story of the walking on water, this is the second story that Matthew includes in his gospel of a miracle that Jesus does on the Sea of Galilee while his disciples are in a boat. I referenced the other one a couple minutes ago when Jesus is sleeping on the boat during the storm back in Matthew 8 when he calms the storm. You know what's really fun? When you put those two passages up next to each other, Matthew 8 with the calming of the storm and this one here with walking on water, there's some really cool similarities. Watch this on this next slide. Text is a little small, but hopefully you can see it from where you're sitting. In both of these stories, you have the disciples crying out, save us, Lord, from what's going on on the sea. And in both of them, we see Jesus act to save them. But he also responds with these words. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then as he acts to rescue, whether that's grabbing Peter by the hand to get him back in the boat, or saying, peace be still, to calm the wind and the waves. Look at the way the disciples respond at the end. In chapter 8, it says that they marveled. That word's kind of fun. It's not just a comic book company. I don't know if you knew that. Um, They marveled. That word kind of has this idea of amazement and confusion kind of stuck together. What was that? Basically is what it means to marvel. I don't believe what I just saw. That was amazing. I can't explain it. Wow. And then they ask a question. Who is this, right? What did we just see, and who are you that the wind and the waves listen to your voice? Do you see the way how in Matthew chapter 14, it's almost like they answer their own question from before? Who is this that the wind and waves obey him? Ah, we see. We no longer just marvel with a sense of amazement and wonder what just happened. We worship you because you are the son of God. Do you see that? Maybe for you, that's my prayer for you right now. If you've been kind of investigating this whole Jesus thing, going, wow, there's some really cool stuff that he taught, these miracles, I don't really know if I buy all that. Keep going. Look carefully. Don't just seek to make the stories of Jesus fit your sensibility for the way that you think the world and things should work. Marvel at who he is. Ask him that question, honestly. What sort of man are you, Jesus? I do think that the Lord honors those honest questions. He gives you more insight into who he is. He shows himself off. That you too might come to that point to say, I don't know everything yet, but I know you are the son of God. You are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of my life. The disciples at this moment, they are growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. They're getting a sense of his deity, that he is God, that he is the son of God. That's the first one. The second one I would say is this. Not only are they growing in their understanding of Jesus' deity, they're also growing in their understanding of their need to depend upon him. To depend upon him. When I step back and I look at this whole chapter as a chunk, which is what we're doing this morning, what sticks out to me is two things in regard to the disciples. Number one, what they were able to do with Jesus. And number two, what they were unable to do without him. Think again about the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Lord, we're in the middle of nowhere. The whole day spent, 
There's no food around. Send the people back to get food. And what does Jesus say to them? They don't need to go anywhere else. You give them something to eat. Us? How are we supposed to do that? All we have are five loaves and two fish, one kid's lunch. How is that going to be so much, enough to feed so many people? Well, bring it here to me, right? That's what he says here. He, says, he brings it to them. He, he looks to heaven. He blesses. He breaks the bread. Then he hands it to his disciples, and the disciples hand it to the people. So go back to the first thing that Jesus told them to do. Jesus told them to feed the people. Did they obey his command? Jesus said, you give them something to eat. Did they give them something to eat? Yes. Yeah, let me do that again. That is, Jesus told the disciples to give the people food to eat. Did they give the people food to eat? Yes, yes they did. They obeyed Jesus' command. But how were they able to obey Jesus' command? What's that? I, what? By depending, on him. By depend, okay, by depending on him. Because Jesus was there. He said, whatever you got, bring it to me. Watch what I can do with it. Now, it's not, okay, I told you to do something. You weren't able to do it, so I'll just go ahead and do it myself. He was no, no, watch what I can do. I'm going to bless this. I'm going to break this. I'm going to put it into your hands. And you are going to do the thing that I asked you to do. You are going to distribute it to the people. You are going to feed the people. But only because I've given you what you needed in order to do what I told you to do. Do you see that principle? Jesus doesn't set impossible demands for us. What he calls us to, he provides for. What he calls us to do, he provides what is needed to do it. Now, that's what they're able to do with Jesus. Miraculously feed 5,000 men plus women and children. What about what they could not do without him? Again, Jesus goes back upon the lake or on the mountain to pray. He sends the disciples back across the, the, the sea on the boat. Are they able to make it across? No. And four of them used to make their living on boats on that lake. Four of them, at least four of them are fishermen. This is where they made their livelihood. They knew this lake like the back of their hand. Now maybe they got a little rusty because they've been off walking with Jesus for a little while. But again, the point is, I think there is a, a purposeful juxtaposition. That's a fun word. You, you, you put two things together because the point is found in the comparison of the two things. Look what you can do with me. Look what you can't do without me. What's the lesson there? What's the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples on this very long day and night? I think it's the very same lesson that he spoke to them later on in John chapter 15 verse 5 when he related it like this. It's like I'm the vine and you're the branches. If the branch isn't connected to the vine, it's not going to grow. Whoever abides in me, remains in me, stays with me, will bear much fruit. But apart from me, what? You can do nothing. Do you see the way that the story of Matthew 14 plays out that very lesson? And it is essential for the disciples and us as disciples to learn this lesson because, again, the whole purpose that Jesus is training them for as disciples is for a much more important mission than just feeding 5,000 people. They must learn to depend upon Jesus because ultimately the mission he's training for them for is the one that we see at the end of the book of Matthew. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, so therefore here's your mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Is that a bigger deal than feeding 5,000 people? Much bigger. And the response, that I would say the rhetorical response on the part of the disciples is, like with the feeding of the 5,000, how are we supposed to do that? Well, just like the lesson that Jesus taught him here in Matthew 14, how will you be able to do what I've called you to do? Because I'll be with you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. I will provide all that is needed for you to do what I've called you to do as you learn to depend upon me. Do you see the lesson of this? They're growing in their understanding of who Jesus is. They're growing in their understanding of Jesus' deity. They're growing in their their understanding of their need to depend upon Jesus. And those same things are for us to learn as well. As we've been in the book of Matthew over the last year, how have you grown in your understanding of who Jesus is? How have you begun to see him in bigger ways, either through our study of this book or circumstances in your life that have shown you in a clearer way who Jesus is? How have you grown in your dependence Recognizing the necessity, man, I get it, Jesus. I've tried to do things on my own apart from you and it falls flat every time. And then even those things that seem too big or too hard for me, when I I believe you've called me to them and I trust you with them, you are with me. You don't leave me hanging. I'm learning to depend upon you. These are the lessons for us to learn as well. And I would say there's one more thing I wanna point out in these last couple minutes. This is kind of what we'll close with. Did you notice again what Jesus says to Peter after he reaches out his hand and rescues him? He uses that same phrase that we saw in Matthew 8 with the calming of the sea. Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. He tells Peter that his faith is little, that it needs to grow, that it's not as big as it needs to be. Do you feel like that? I do. There are so many times I look back on my week, my day, and I go, Jesus, I put way more of that weight on my own shoulders to get things done than looking to you as the strong one. He looks at Peter and he says, your faith is little. But notice, he doesn't say he's faith less. He doesn't say he has no faith. That's what Matthew said about the people in Nazareth at the end of chapter 13. Remember that? Jesus did not do many mighty works in his hometown of Nazareth because of their unbelief, their faithlessness. In contrast to that, Peter and the disciples have little faith. He said the same thing with calming in the storm. Oh, you have little faith. Why are you afraid? He said the same thing back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Your heavenly father clothes the grass of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. And you're much more valuable than they are. Oh, you of little faith. Whenever Jesus speaks to his disciples saying that they have little faith, understand this. This is really important. This isn't an F on their report card. This is not failure. I would say it's more like the N on the report card. It's improvement right? 
There is need for improvement. There is need for growth. But that begs the question, if their faith is little, how does faith get bigger? How does their trust in Jesus grow? And this is what I find so remarkable in this passage and in Matthew 8 or Matthew 6. Anytime that Jesus tells his disciples their faith is little, he doesn't respond by saying, so just faith more, faith bigger, trust me more, conjure it up, work harder to believe more. Do you know what he does each time he says that we have little faith? In that same context, he does something or says something to demonstrate his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Why don't we need to worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear? Look at your heavenly father. He takes care of you and he loves you. He is compassionate and powerful to meet your needs. Trust him. When the disciples are scared of the wind and the waves, Jesus both says, your faith is small, but watch what I can do. And each time as he acts, he does so in a way that demonstrates his trustworthiness and blows the top off the box of whatever box they'd put him in. I want to show you how much bigger and better, gooder, there's more goodness in me than you realize. There's more power in me than you realize. There is more compassion in me than you realize. Whatever your conception of Jesus, he's bigger and he's better. That's how he dresses their little faith. Not by saying, believe more. Let me show you more of who I am. Let me show you how big and sufficient I am. So here's again what I would say as we wrap this up. What do we learn about being disciples of Jesus? Our faith in Jesus grows as our view of Jesus grows. Not as we try harder to believe more. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus and see how sufficient, see how good and powerful and caring he is, I don't need to take this weight on myself. I don't need to be like the the Gentile people that Jesus talked about in Matthew 6 who have to run after food and clothing and drink because they don't know they have a heavenly father who takes care of them. I can rest. He's good. He's big. I can come to him for rest because I'm weary and heavy laden. And he said he's gentle and lowly at heart and I'll find refreshment for my soul and I'm learning to trust him because I see more of who he is. Our faith in Jesus grows as our view of Jesus grows and our view of Jesus grows as we get closer to him. Do you see that as a pattern in your life? Again, over the past year, How has your view of Jesus grown? How have you begun to see more of his goodness, his patience, his kindness, his ability to bring all things together in the way that God intends? Have you seen that correspond to a greater degree of trust and reliance upon him? Do you see your need for him more than you did a year ago? Do you practice that neediness by coming to him? This is how little faith gets bigger. Amen? I know for me, man, as I've been thinking through this, the the part that has just captivated my mind is, again, seeing the way that Jesus redirects his plans, pours out his heart in serving and caring for people all day, and then retreats to be with his father that night. I feel like this week for me has been one in which there have been many needs and not the ability to push them off. 
And so what I've needed to do this week is go, Lord, I don't know if I have enough for this. Would you meet me there? And he has shown himself to be so trustworthy. But what I'm seeking to practice is to recognize that my need for God is greater than my need to get stuff done. And so at the end of today, as the, the tasks that I have on schedule for today come to an end, uh, tomorrow I will not be reachable. <laughs> I'm going to take some time tomorrow. Just I, wanna, I look at the example of Jesus and go, Lord, I, I want that. I want to find that sense of refreshment in my Father. I want to look to Him to meet my needs. I want to learn to have my eyes on Him, to see Him bigger and trust Him more. Would you join me in that this week? If you recognize that your time with Jesus has become one of those things, I'll get around to it at some point. Need it like food. Need it like sleep. Revel in it like sleep. Revel in it like you do food. He is good and powerful to meet us. We will not be able to be faithful with the things that he's called us to do if we try to do it in our own power. But man, if we look to him, if we walk with him, we will bear much fruit. Amen? Let me pray for us. And then if you would like some prayer, there'll be some folks up here at the prayer room. We're going to sing one more song called In Christ Alone in which we will declare, perhaps sometimes in words that are beyond our practice of them yet, but in order to encourage our practice of them, that all that we have is bound up in Christ alone. Our identity, our future, our hope, our strength, all of those are found in Jesus alone. Let's look to him together. Father, G Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Jesus. Would you empower us? Would you give us eyes to see him more clearly that our faith may grow? Would you help us, Lord? We ask this in your name. Amen.